Hello and welcome to Distributing Solar. We speak with entrepreneurs and experts working in the off-grid solar industry around the world, bringing to life how distributed solar is changing lives in emerging markets. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Leslie Labruto, who is Head of Global Energy at Acumen. Acumen is a leading impact investment fund that looks to bridge the gap between the efficiency and scale of market-based approaches and the social impact of pure philanthropy. They invest in entrepreneurs who bring sustainable solutions to the big problems of poverty. So we're delighted to be here today with Leslie Labruto. Leslie is Head of Global Energy at Acumen. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you so much, Eugene. It's a pleasure to be here. It would be great if you could start us off by telling us more about your background, how you got into energy, and also tell us more about Acumen as an organization. Absolutely. And again, thanks for having me. Um, so again, my name is Leslie, and you know my pathway into clean energy was pretty unique. I was raised mostly by my grandmother and my mom, and my grandmother was a tungsten coiler for a light bulb company many, many years ago. Um, she would have turned 102 this year, um, but she just passed away last year. But anyway, she was really inspiring for me, and I think you know just watching her be in the manufacturing and in the kind of the harder manufacturing side of things made me always want to be an engineer. So I studied engineering and it was really when I was quite young that I realized that I wanted to commit my career to clean energy. And that takes so many twists and turns. You can do large scale projects, small scale. And I worked in everything from venture capital and finance all the way through to development work at the Clinton Foundation. And because I saw the power that capital markets can bring to solutions, I found Acumen and the role was quite perfect to think about how we could use venture capital in a way that serves the poor and, in the words of Acumen, makes capital work for us and not control us. And then Acumen is a a nonprofit uh, venture capital fund. So primarily we're focusing on investing in companies and in leaders who are trying to change the way society works and change the way the world tackles poverty. And can you tell us more about how Acumen differs from other venture capital funds and what is unique about Acumen? Certainly. Acumen actually uses philanthropically backed capital, so grant capital, to make its investments. And what that means is that we can take higher risk than any other venture capital firm out there. And we therefore also don't anticipate necessarily a return. So we can take the risk that would be required without having to prove a return to, say, an investor. That said, we do want to have companies be financially viable and see market-based solutions grow. So we target a 1x return is sort of our our hurdle rate. And, um, And what also makes us different is our commitment to the poor. So the customers that our companies are trying to serve are really, really low income in emerging markets compared to, say, uh, some of the customers that you might see companies serving in Silicon Valley. Great. So let's dive into the off-grid sector. Typically, the off-grid sector is divided into three main subcategories. We see mini-grids, standalone solar systems, and Pico solar systems or appliances. Do you agree with this categorization? And if so, can you provide an overview of how these systems differ? And what are your perspectives on the commercial viability of each of these business models? Sure, I think that, you know, I think the way you broke it down is how we think about it as well. There's usually off-grid products and and the ancillary services and then mini-grids is sort of a a different system and certainly a different business model. The way I would differentiate them is we've really seen pay-as-you-go for the solar home systems and solar products take off. And they haven't really needed uh, too much large-scale market-based support. Certainly, grants have played a role in boosting that sector to where it is today. 
But these systems can cost anywhere from less than $10 all the way through about $200, $300. And the beauty of that business model is that once pay as you go emerged, which is basically, you know, a low income customer probably couldn't afford a $280 system, but if they only had to pay 20, 30, 50 cents a day over 18 months, over two years, they can then own that system. And that's really the difference. And that's a true market-based solution. And for those that don't know what these solar home systems are, it's usually a, a solar panel, quite small, a battery, and maybe two or three light bulbs and a, and a phone charging port, something quite basic, but it gives a customer autonomy, it gives them freedom. And also if they're able to pay off this system, they then become part of a financial, a financial inclusion or financial system that they maybe wouldn't have been part of because then they have a credit history. So they can access other goods and services uh, beyond just energy. On the mini grid side of things, we're talking about infrastructure. And that is that is a key difference that people, I think, sometimes overlook and think, well, if solar home systems can work, why not mini grids? And mini grids have a big capital cost. Um, we're talking quarter of a million dollars for you know a, a 40 kilowatt system or whatever it is. And, and that matters. Um, and that matters when we're trying to serve the poor. Now, what we notice, though, is that even though they they cost quite a bit, the, the breadth of services that a low-income customer or just a customer in general can have access to is, is much, much greater than just light. So you can power a, a, a milling machine, you can power a, a, a small store, you have anchor tenants, um, and it's a more of a community-based approach, but I would say faces a number of different sets of challenges than the off-grid sort of products and solar home system side. And around the commercial viability of these business models, there is still a lot of discussion about how sustainable they might be in the long term. There is a lot of investment that has gone into this sector, but there's concern across the landscape about the business models and financial viability of many of these off-grid solar companies. For example, we had the announcement that Mobisol was entering into administration earlier this year, and that was seen as an indicator that the sector might be in something of a bubble. And at the same time, earlier this year as well, there was the announcement of Kawasaki's latest $70 million fund. What are your thoughts about the investment landscape at the moment? Are people right to be excited or should they be more cautious? I think it's such a momentous time. I mean, just exactly as you said, in 2012, we saw $50 million of investment go into the sector. And in the last two years, that number has increased sixfold to $300 million. So we're seeing more and more capital come into the market. And for a sector that's trying to do a lot of good in the world in terms of energy access, that's a good thing. Uh, so I think that's something to be excited about. And of course, the market will have ups and downs and a shakeout, uh, you know, of the likes of, of Mobisol and then the likes of D-Light on the other side of the spectrum. Um, we will see companies that need to, you know, these companies both were first mover companies and they had so much to figure out. I mean, to figure out that your business model that you thought was just distributing maybe lanterns was also a credit business and a distribution business and a and a financing company and a maintenance company. I mean, these are complex business models and that's the light bulb moment, no pun intended, that I think people are now having to realize that this is complex and something that seems as basic as providing light to the poor is complicated and you're working in really tough markets. So what excites me is the fact that people are noticing this and, and incredible entrepreneurs are coming up with solutions as we talk about sort of disaggregating that value chain. That's what that really means. People are thinking about better software solutions, 
more efficient distribution channels, more efficient hardware, um, and trying to find their niche and then scale that within um, with Indi- India, East Africa, and West Africa. So, you know, when I think about the capital coming in, I think we have growth capital in the right places we need it. I hear some people say there's plenty of money. Some people say there's not enough money. And I can lend the perspective of Acumen, which is we invest in seed and series A sort of investment rounds, so really early days. And that's where I see the pioneer gap is still persisting. So we did some work around this because ultimately we all want to see the full viability of this market. And if there's a bottleneck anywhere, it's, you know, the market has has an opportunity to respond. And so when we look at the, the early stage energy access landscape, to get to where we need to be, which is achieving universal energy access by 2030, we need about $210 million of seed and Series A capital to get kind of those those country, those companies in the right markets to where they need to be. And on average, over the last five years, we've seen a dismal $16.5 million on average. So that is a quantum gap. And that early stage capital is the difference between the next delight versus a company that will never make it be, make it out of the gate. And so when I see sort of a, a risk and an opportunity is in that early stage of funding. And then as I see more growth fund, as I see the likes of FMO taking a bit more risk, Kawasaki entering the scene, I'm, I'm encouraged by the end of the cycle. I think there is capital there where I think we're all watching and waiting is to see more exits in the sector. And that's a great point for us to start asking about how Acumen thinks about your investments. Acumen is obviously focused on impact, but still looks to make financial returns. How do you think about the trade-off between returns and impact, and what are the timelines on return expected to be? For Acumen, we built our model around something called patient capital, which many of you may have heard of. And the difference is that we were talking about venture capital firms, and they typically want to make returns in three years, and in five years, 3x their money, you know, 10x their money, whatever it is. And at Acumen, we are willing to keep our capital in for longer, because we don't have that sort of time pressure that we need to return our capital, since, again, we're using philanthropically backed capital. So we'll keep our capital into a, in a company anywhere from seven to 10. We're even seeing maybe it's 12 years to take it, take the company where it needs to be, where Acumen really no longer serves its need anymore, and they've graduated to sort of a new class of of growth investors. Um, So what we're looking for is, again, across our portfolio, on average, we're looking for a 1x. We want to make our money back, ideally. And, you know, that goes with the fact that there will be companies that we have to write off, and there will be smash successes in our portfolio. Um, So that's sort of the the overall, uh, I'd say, high-level numbers. We'll invest anywhere from $250,000 to a million into a company, and then we do want to do and reserve capital for follow-on. And you asked what we're looking for, and there's really three things that we're looking for when it comes to making sure it's right a right company for our investment. Um, the first and foremost, and I always want to lead with this, is moral leadership. Um, when it comes to the intention of an entrepreneur, is their heart and mind and mission in the right place for why they're doing this? Are they trying to pick up on the trends of the sector and seeing lots of money signs coming in, or are they committed to serving the poor in a, in a specific market? And that compass is something that you can only tell with judgment and by really engaging with an entrepreneur to see um, why are they doing this? And I think, you know, just putting that out there is, I'd say, the number one thing we're looking for. Yeah, that, that's the team, really. Um, and the second is we want to see that you have a product or service that's truly catalytic and is struggling to find financing. I'll give you an example. One of our portfolio companies, it's called Easy Solar, and they were operating a solar home system distribution business in Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. Sierra Leone is one of the toughest markets in Africa. 89% of the people live under the poverty line. 90% of the country is unelectrified, and there's virtually no mobile money. So 
coming add that to the fact that there was just Ebola and a civil war that ended um, in the last two decades, and the fact that they have mudslides. I mean, it, it it is it is a pure red flag for any investor, and for Acumen, it was a total green light because we want to go to the markets that are really tough to serve with entrepreneurs that are trying to figure something out in a market that is really difficult. And um, and the last thing I'd say we look for is that, is your product or service really serving the poor? So many entrepreneurs will come with, with you know products and services and businesses. Maybe it's residential solar in India or commercial industrial solar in Kenya. We think that is you know incredible work that's needed. It might not be where Acumen's focus is if we're trying to squarely find solutions that are gonna work uh, and be within reach for the poor, those living roughly under $3.10 a day. And Acumen has made a number of investments, as we understand, within the energy access space broadly, and that ranges from clean cooking to mini grids and solar home systems. Can you tell us more about the investments you've made so far? Yes. So in the energy space, Acumen has made 24 investments. Um, So we've invested about $24.1 million into the sector. And in addition to mini grids and solar home system and, and solar products that I spoke about before, we've also invested in the clean cooking sector. And Acumen was quite a first mover in this. We have six clean cooking companies in our portfolio, ranging from a distribution company reaching last mile customers in India called Frontier Markets, to burn manufacturing, which is manufacturing cleaner cookstoves in Kenya, um, all the way through to an ethanol-based business in Nigeria called Green Energy Biofuels. So we've made a lot of investments in the sector compared to other investors. And clean cooking has had a difficult track record. Unlike solar, where it's lower cost and the demand from customers is quite a pull. They want these products when it comes to lighting. Clean cooking requires a massive behavior change. Um, you're asking you know, those to potentially purchase a product that ch- challenges or changes their traditional you know, behavior when it comes to cooking and preferences. Um, so we're watching the space quite closely. We think that all eyes are on clean cooking. There's 3 billion people without access to uh, clean cooking solutions or cooking with dirty fuels. Um, Whereas there's about 840 million people now without energy access um, from an electrification perspective. So not that one is better or worse. Um, I just think we need more talented minds and brilliant people working on clean cooking, especially as we see more fuel sources like um, LPG and solar uh, cookstoves become more prevalent to just be thinking about um, what is the next kind of quantum leap we're going to need to see to make sure that those 3 billion people stop ideally cooking with dirty fuels that that are, of course, damaging to their health. And another sector that's received a lot of attention in recent years is productive energy use. Do you share the excitement around productive energy use? And can you start by providing us with a quick definition of what we mean by productive energy? Acumen is deeply interested in productive use technologies. And when I say productive use, I think we share the opinion that it typically means a product or service that's helping a low-income customer generate income. Um, So, you know, whereas a a solar home system with lighting provides light, can we think about pairing some of these solar technologies with appliances like irrigation pumps, agro-processors for milling grains, um, even solar silk sewing machines in India. And this is how uh, I think the sector defines productive use generally. And 
Acumen actually launched in 2017 our latest initiative, which is our Pioneer Energy Investment Initiative, trying to commit about you know $20 million worth of capital to the sector. And one of the three pillars, in addition to solar home systems in new markets like Easy Solar and mini grid companies, which I'm sure we'll speak about, the third is innovations and productive use. Now, it's been really interesting because Acumen has this commitment to serving the poor. And it's been about two years since we launched the, the PEII, Pioneer Energy Investment Initiative. And we're finding some interesting things. As we do diligence on more companies, what we're finding is that productive use technologies, while quite innovative, still are out of reach for the poor. Maybe it's intuitive, right? A solar irrigation pump is probably going to be a bit more expensive than just a solar panel for lights. These can retail anywhere from $700 to $1,200 to $2,000. And for a really low-income customer living under the poverty line, um, who we're trying to you know, help sell an appliance to, to lift them out of poverty, is um, it's going to be out of reach. So we're noticing that PageDuGo is doing a bit more integration with these technologies, but still getting that right with being being a manufacturer from developing an actual technology, you still have to distribute it, you still have to maintain it, there's still after-sales support all around a customer that's probably in a really difficult-to-reach market. So we're seeing that there's definitely some more kinks that need to be worked out. Um, We've made some investments in the sector already. Uh, We invested in a company called Semisolar in Tanzania that's focusing on the distribution component. So we think there's some really solid manufacturers out there. What Semisolar is doing is working with low-income customers in the Lake Victoria region and trying to help make these productive use technologies more affordable, more accessible. Um, you know, offering more creative payment plans with a longer tenor, being more thoughtful about what the deposit will be, and really offering that after-sales support. Um, but we're excited to keep watching the space, making investments, and you know, as costs continue to drop, we feel that there's great promise for productive use, especially its role in helping poverty alleviation. That's a that's a really helpful perspective because sometimes it seems that a number of organizations and groups are treating productive energy use as something of a panacea across the energy access space with the belief that because you're increasing the incomes of end users that automatically makes the technology more accessible and the business models more viable. And if we can return to the commercial viability of business models, do you think the viability still needs to be proven or do you think it's primarily um, the distribution and operational challenges that are remaining ahead? You know, as we look at the solar home system market, again, we've seen varying success with some of the early movers of in the sector. And a lot of what it comes down to is operational excellence, Mm -hmm. because there are scaled solar home system companies that are now profitable. And profitable means your business model is working. You have the unit economics right along along the way. You're running an efficient business and you're generating cash flow, which is the signs that a market's viable, um, or at least the early indications of so. And a lot of it comes down to execution. And I think on the solar system side, the demand is there, the growth is there. There's been a lot of capital to support these companies, but that's okay. I mean, we need to remember these are really difficult markets serving really rural customers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the fact that grants have played a role in scaling these companies, I think you know, we need to acknowledge that's okay. You know, the expectation that these companies would purely have a commercial, you know, opportunity to do X, Y, or Z, that's a tough challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think for the companies that are really standing strong today, um, we've seen that the business model is working and the unit economics are strong and there will be, I think, quite strong exits for some of these companies at the end of the day. And you said earlier that you'd like to see more positive exits in the sector. What are your thoughts around exits at the moment and what are the challenges around having more exits? Do you think it's a matter of time 
or are people more hesitant about making investments in the sector and in particular these geographies? What do you think is holding up exits in the energy access space? So we're doing a lot of soul searching and work on exits in the sector. We think it's something that's typically talked about mostly within the investor community, but not talked about enough. And I think the importance of speaking about exits is it shows the full potential viability of a market. An exit is not a bad thing. It's actually something to celebrate. If an investor is able to exit a company, it's a real feather in the cap of that company to say, we were able to graduate from one capital base to the next and to show growth. Um, and for the, and and likewise, it shows that the cap the the market around energy access can be cyclical. It's not just linear. It's not just a bloated sector with a lot of cash in it. It shows that cash can be revolved, and that's something that I feel quite strongly about that we need to continue proving, especially as an early stage investor who has struggled to get their their capital um, out of some companies when it really is time for acumen to exit. Uh, our purpose is no longer served. So you asked what some of the challenges are. We're actually going to be putting out a report in um, later in 2019 on this. So I'll encourage everyone to read it. But some of the early conclusions that we're finding are there's not a huge market or appetite for secondary sales. And what I mean for secondary sales for those who are listening is an investor buys out the shares of an earlier investor. Um, and we're seeing that a lot of the growth stage investors tend to be DFIs, for example, and they have a mandate to support impact. And sometimes it's hard for a DFI to justify their capital going to buy an early stage investor when their capital is meant to go towards, quote, new impact. Now, that said, what what I think needs to be reframed is buying an early investor can be hugely catalytic because then you're freeing up capital earlier in the market to support the next wave, the next pipeline of entrepreneurs that eventually that growth stage investor is ideally going to be looking at. Um, I think also, you know, we're finding that the sector is still quite young. So, you know, while we want to talk about exits and plan for them, we do need to give the sector a bit more time to mature. Some of these companies only came in the last decade, really. Um, and to, to expect these companies to have, you know, dramatic, exciting exits is, um, is something I just think we need to continue to watch. And lastly, we are seeing strategics play a role. I think we all saw um, the acquisition of Phoenix and Simpa networks, both in Africa and India, respectively, by Engie. Mm-hmm. And and strategics are investing more in the sector. We see Shell and Total and NG and a number of other um, sort of energy majors coming in. And I think uh, we're going to see more activity um, in this sector where and who it comes from, I think will be part of their strategic plans. But just knowing that these energy companies want to make distribution and connections in Africa and India and Southeast Asia a part of their business model, that's why we'll probably see a bit more um, merger acquisition exits occur. And around the strategic involvement of established energy companies who are entering the energy access space, how serious do you think they are about working in the space and establishing their presence? We've heard, for instance, about EDF not just making investments, but actually working with B-Box in sub-Saharan Africa. Do you think they think of this as the next market for them? Or do you think they're mostly curious from an impact perspective? What do you think are their motivations for working in the energy access industry? From my perspective, having worked with many of them, served on boards of different companies, I would say the intention really varies. Mm-hmm. For some, this is sort of a, a an impact thesis, trying to, to do good in the world in, in many of the markets where they operate, and in some ways show that they're committed to energy access more from a philanthropic perspective. But others are really building this into their strategic visions, and we're seeing more and more companies wanting to have 
you know, customer acquisition in these really tough markets. And there's companies, startups that are doing this exceptionally well. So we're noticing more and more strategics, even wanting to get join the board, learn about these companies so that eventually they can either understand through their own operations or by companies who are actually accessing these customers um, via solar, by, via business models that are working. So um, I think the long, the, the long answer made very short is it does vary um, by, by strategic. And uh, it's a case by case basis for which business models they're most excited about, what their risk appetite is, and what their overall strategic mission and aim is as a company. Great. And one sector we haven't talked about in much detail is the mini grid sector. The mini grid sector seems to face the greatest challenge in terms of near term financial viability. And typically, if you look at the business case for a mini grid, you're looking at payback periods of between seven to 10 years. It'd be great to hear more about what you think about the sector and what do you think is necessary for expediting and accelerating growth in mini grids? And to begin with, I suppose, do you think it's an important sector for energy access? So as I mentioned, the second pillar of what we're working on now through our our Pioneer Energy Investment Initiative is mini-grids. And we historically have made about seven investments in mini-grid companies, and we just closed um, in in two companies, one of which is PowerGen in Africa, which is the largest mini-grid company um, by by sites in uh, in Africa. And we see mini-grids are an essential component of energy access if we want to reach SDG 7. They have a large breadth, so ability to reach a number of customers. And what we're finding is that mini-grids have the business model that can serve the poor the best. Um, The poverty focus of many of these mini-grid companies is up to 70%. In the solar home system market, on average, it's about 30%. So mini-grids have an ability to reach the poor that is unparalleled with any other business model. And on the productive use sort of income generation side, it's near immediate because there needs to be demand stimulation on these grids. And a great way to do that is through these higher powered appliances that also generate income. That said, the market has had many challenges. As you said, uh, these are infrastructure projects and people are sort of expecting venture capital-like returns. And there's a bit of a mismatch in what we're seeing with capital flow into this market. The one thing I will underscore, and I'm unabashed about saying, is mini-grids need subsidy and that's okay. Mm -hmm. So when we look at electrification, and I know this is said many times in the mini-grid sector, electrification globally, if you look at the rural um, electrification program even in the United States in the 1930s, it required subsidy, and that was okay. These are really tough-to-reach markets, big infrastructure projects that are trying to reach customers that would not be connected to the grid otherwise because it's it's uneconomical for the grid to extend to these specific places in rural Benin or rural Tanzania. Um, So, you know, viewing... A mini grid as a public good is how I think we need to reframe the conversation debate. And I know the works of AMDA and Shell Foundation, they're putting tons of effort into developing a results-based financing facility where, you know, a mini grid can develop a, a grid and if they meet certain metrics, they're then paid for the connection cost. And if we can subsidize the connection cost meaningfully in Africa, I think we can unlock really that next paradigm, that next leap we need to see in energy access to start connecting the really remote customers who may never even be serviced by a solar home distribution company because maybe they're even that hard to reach. Um, I see great promise with mini grids. We're quite excited to double down our efforts in mini grids. And we're hoping many other investors sort of are willing to take that risk and be champions for subsidy programs that need to be need to be coming online. You mentioned results-based financing, and that has typically been spearheaded by the World Bank and other governments. Do you have any thoughts about where the funding should be coming from? Should it be coming from local governments or multilateral development banks, or indeed from other sources? 
the money can come in from anywhere, in my opinion. Um, but ultimately, I noticed that there was a big data gap and people talk about there's not enough data, we need more data. And I think that was true in some cases. I think there's some education that needs to happen with respect to what is a mini grid? Who can it serve? Why are we looking at these things? What's so exciting about them? And now that companies have been really pioneering and willing to understand customers better and willing to get that data and share it with the likes of local governments, national governments, the World Bank, DFIs, multilaterals, I think there is a, a recognition that a subsidy for these mini-grid companies could be game-changing. And where the money comes from, I, again, I know uh, the, the works of AMDA, everyone is sort of working together in the sector. And it's funny, the, the horse is really coming before the cart, if I can use if I'm using that phrase correctly. But what I mean is investors like Acumen are coming together with our co-investors in the sector to say, we're willing to put in money. In fact, we have put in money. If a subsidy came online, we would be there, you know, even tenfold that to really show that this this market can scale. So I think the the, the likes of the World Bank are picking up on this and these are in development. I know Nigeria has done an incredible job being progressive, thinking about an RBF and it's unlocking the sector. Companies are really excited to set up uh, mini grids in, in Nigeria because there's promise that the, the economics can work, right? They become viable. And right now I give a lot of credit to the mini grid companies out there. They're being opportunistic. They're chasing, you know, where, wherever they can go, they're willing to go because they want to prove that it can work if there's subsidies available. Um, I think the outlook is bright. I think the uh, the the impact that a, a mini grid can have, as well as the ancillary benefits, such as income generation that we talked about, are proven enough to the point where governments are taking note. They want to electrify their populations um, and they want uh, customers to be really satisfied with their services. And that's sort of the direction of the sector. And, and again, I think it's bright. And related to the impact that these projects can have, Acumen developed Lean Data, which was recently spun out to create 60 decibels. Can you tell us more about Lean Data and 60 decibels? And what are your hopes for an organization like 60 decibels? Acumen, like many other impact investors, you know, in the 2010, 12, 14 sort of time frame, we're, we're looking at their impact. And like many of you uh, who may be, ident- be able to identify with this, a lot of it was Excel documents and counting up units sold and customers served and you know drawing conclusions about the you know behavioral psychology of mm-hmm. customers and trying to figure out the impact of the sector. And we just decided if we're really committed to the customer and committed to serving the port, that's just not good enough. And Excel that's you know summed up is not really impact. And we start thinking, what is impact? And we we realized that the person or people who could tell us about impact most were probably the customers of these product or services. So Acumen created something called Lean Data. It's a low-cost, low-tech tool to reach out to customers to learn about their experience with a product or service. Simple as that, a, a survey or, or an interview to ask them, did this product or service meaningfully change your life? Did you experience a challenge with your product or service? Did you have access to alternatives? We were able to generate income from your your product or service. And by asking these questions, we're able to get a much more complete and holistic view of the impact of a, of a company's product or service on a customer base. And this has transformed the way Acumen thinks. And quite honestly, it's transformed the way many investors think who also started using Lean Data as their methodology for impact. And it's changed the way we think about our investment thesis, because as much as this is an impact tool, it's also a business model tool. If you're able to see that 60% of a, a company's customers had challenges with their with their product or service, that's not only a, a, a negative you know, impact um, indicator, 
but it's also showing that something might not be working in the business model. So just a bit more about lean data. When the information is collected by the company's customers, it is completely owned by the company. That's something we're quite adamant about. We want this to be a tool for our investees. And we also want this to be a tool for the pipeline companies that we look at. So we tend to do lean data during due diligence, which is an incredibly useful tool for an early stage entrepreneur to say, I didn't even know that you know, 90% of my customers had access to alternatives. And I really thought I was doing something novel and unique in a, in a pioneering market. Um, so again, we found uh, the lean data tool to be exceptionally beneficial for our work, especially in energy access. We produced our first energy impact report that aggregated and anonymized this data. And we were able to make meaningful conclusions like how many customers are poor that our portfolio is serving? And, you know, was it 10%, 70%? What was it? And we found out that it was about 33%. And that's a huge learning for us that across our portfolio, our poverty reaches about 33%. And we're able to say, okay, that's a benchmark and we want to do better. We want our companies to be serving 50% uh, low-income customers, or maybe 33% is the sweet spot to make a business viable. So, you know, we're getting so many learnings from this. And the reason why Lean Data decided to spin out and become 60 decibels, which for those who are wondering, 60 decibels is the frequency of human voice. Mm -hmm. um, and as we listen to customers at 60 decibels, that makes sense. Um, but we just really wanted to unleash this tool for the world and keeping it within Acumen, which is a nonprofit, uh, stopped making sense in some ways. Uh, as more and more people started using lean data in the sector and asking for lean data as a service, um, it was just a clear opportunity to unleash 60 decibels to the world and the lean data tool. And we're really excited for the journey that they uh, just started on a couple months ago as their own entity. Great. And Acumen works around the world. Are there any geographical areas you focus on or countries you avoid because of political or socioeconomic factors? And how do you deal with and consider the risk reward and impact profile of each country you work in and each country you invest in? So Acumen is uniquely set up where all of our investing is done locally. Despite the fact that I'm here in London, um, we do have teams around the world that do the actual investing. Um, and our offices in our markets are East and West Africa, India, Pakistan, Latin America, and in the United States, we have Acumen America. And of course, our headquarters is in New York. Um, so we set up these offices for a very strategic reason, and that is we went to where we thought the need was in these core markets, and we wanted to keep our geographic kind of focus limited to where we know best, because if Acumen starts investing in, in countries where we don't really understand the market, we don't have staff from, we think there could be a disconnect with how well we can serve that company in their in their pathway to scale. So in West Africa, we actually just recently relocated our offices from Ghana to Nigeria um, because we see the need in Nigeria is incredibly high and the opportunity is tremendous and the impact investing landscape is still quite fragmented and we want to have a strong presence there to show that we can double down on this country um, where there are 110 million people without energy access. We also invest in agriculture, education, health. So Acumen's not just about energy access. Um, but in, in East Africa, we invest in Kenya, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Rwanda, and Uganda. Again, with staff making these investments out of our Nairobi office in India, a deep focus on India, and of course, Pakistan. Um, I, I would say that there's so many markets that are underserved beyond where Acumen invests. If I look at the Chads and the Burkina Fasos and the Somalias of the world, there are so many solutions that are needed to deliver so solutions for customers where they have choice. And that's really what Acumen is based, uh, based on. 
In the future, I would love to see an, a, a region for everywhere in the world for Acumen to be operating. Um, but right now, we want to go deep in these markets that we're currently operating in. Of course, I see opportunity. Um, and if anyone wants to start the next Acumen in all the other markets where we don't operate, I highly encourage you to do so. Amazing. And to close our conversation, what is your future outlook for the energy access sector? You know, I get so encouraged by the numbers. Um, for those that don't know, when we started the PEII, there was about 1.1, 1.2 billion people without energy access from an electrification perspective. And just recently, um, Sustainable Energy for All published that there's now 840 million people without energy access. And that number was quite captivating to me. I think it's important to look at that number and see what efforts are, are happening. How did we how did we make that quantum leap to electrify, um, and, and we, I mean, governments and the whole sector electrify over 200 million people in such a short time frame. And a lot of credit goes to, to Kenya, to India, and Bangladesh for their electrification efforts on grid. Um, I, I laud these governments for making the strides that they do. Um, and in these markets, I think a lot is going to be about reliability. So, you know, we see that energy access has been sort of declared victory in these markets, but reliability is still quite low. In some of these markets, you may only have power for four hours a day, and you're kind of they, they check the box on that customer and say they're electrified. But really, if that power is coming between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., they're still unelectrified. So I think there's a robustness that I get quite excited about that we can see for entrepreneurs who want to focus on reliability. And then of the 840 million that are still without energy access, over 610 million are in sub-Saharan Africa. So we're seeing great progress in Southeast Asia. Still a lot of work needs to be done in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly in the markets that I mentioned before that are really high risk, where Activity is incredibly low. Entrepreneurship is quite low. And there just needs to be some thoughtfulness about how electrification can happen in some of these markets and how customers can have access to choice in some of the hardest to reach markets out there, which is going to require, I just think, a different way of thinking fundamentally. Um, the same old even venture capital model will probably need to be challenged in these markets to see if we want to see market-based solutions become viable in the hard to reach markets. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Leslie. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Eugene. Yeah, we look forward to working with you in the future. Likewise. That was our conversation with Leslie Labruto from Acumen. That conversation was recorded in 2019, and as a result, the report that Leslie mentions is already available on the Acumen website. It's called Lighting the Way Roadmap to Exits in Off-Grid Energy. You can download it from their website, and we'd highly encourage you to take a look. If you have any questions or comments, please visit us on our website at www.distributingsolar.com. We have notes from our podcast, useful sources and contact details available. We look forward to hearing from you.